Well, we're continuing our, our sermon series from the book of Deuteronomy entitled, Ruled by a Gracious God. Ruled by a Gracious God. And I thought it would be good for us as we are uh, jumping into this portion of the Ten Commandments to go back and remember what that title actually means. Because we don't, we don't typically think of those two words as belonging together, I don't think. Um, we, don't, we don't think of rules and grace <laughs> as being in the same category. You know what I mean? Um, rules or being ruled tends to stir feelings of oppression or, or being confined or, or restricted or, or enslaved in some way. We think of rules as, as joy-killing things, legalistic things, death-warmed-over sorts of things, right? And grace, or, or being gracious on the other hand, it, it tends to to arouse or, or trigger feelings of, of kindness and respect and, and tolerance or, or no judgment. I think 10 times out of 10, if you ask someone, you pick, would you like rules or grace? Every time, without fail, they're going with Grace. Grace all the way. Because rules feel life-taking. And grace feels life-giving. And so we, we dive into God's word. We, we dive into conversation in Christian circles. Skeptical of anything that feels like a rule. Right? And eager for things that feel like grace. And that is a massive problem. A great big problem. Listen, because both our, our cultural understanding of what it means to be ruled and our cultural understanding of what it means to be gracious are equally wrong. <laughs> equally wrong. God's rules, think about his rules for just a moment. God's rules, they mark out the path of life, friend. Because life is only found in, in submission to God's authority and in living the way he created and redeems us to live. God, God's rules are an expression of his grace. They're, they're a sign of his favor, his undeserved favor. God doesn't owe us life. He doesn't owe you pointing out the path of life or the path of joy. We, we deserve nothing but judgment. But, but in the wonder of his grace, what does God do? He delights to reveal the path of life and then lead us down the path of life by what? By transforming our hearts and giving us both a desire and power to submit to his authority. And the fact that God is gracious Think about grace for just a moment. That, what, what's that mean? Well, it means he, he delights to lavish blessings on us that you and I don't deserve. That's what grace is. He loves us, not, not on account of who we are, but on account of who he is. He, he loves us not because we are lovely, 
but in order that he might make us lovely. That's what grace does. God's grace is not a, it's all good, judgment-free zone sort of attitude. God's grace is not tolerance in, in the form of freedom for, for you to do you. What is grace? Grace, listen, is unmerited favor in the form of love that transforms us more into the image of Christ, the supremely joyful son of God. Amen. That's what grace is. And that means, friends, that there are things that might not feel gracious to you or to me, that are actually exceedingly good and gracious. Because they are what? Forming you and I, forming us into the image of Christ, the supremely joyful Son of God. That's the most kind and gracious thing God can ever do for you. So to be ruled by a gracious God, what's the point? Is to experience the blessing of being brought into the joy and freedom of living under his authority. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. So, so why is that important to remember? Why, why pause here at this moment in this series to go back to the title? Well, I do that to remind us, friends, that the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5 are not a cold power grab on God's part. They're not a power trip. They're not God's way of, oh, I'm going to own you. <laughs> okay? They, they, what are the Ten Commandments? They are an authoritative declaration from our king where he says, live this way that you might live. Love me like this. Love your neighbor like this. Love me like this. Love your neighbor like this. Why? Because on this path, you will find life. Go this way that you might live because this is the path of joy. In other words, the Ten Commandments are not obstacles between you and the good life that have to be seasoned with grace in order for them to be palatable and go down without causing indigestion. The Ten Commandments are what it looks like to love God and everyone around you with the love he graciously first showed you. And that is why keeping them isn't this legalistic exercise in earning God's favor or, or a list of what conservative or traditional Christians do, okay? No. Keeping the Ten Commandments is a faith-filled response to the grace God has poured out on us in Jesus. It's what faith looks like in delightfully practical terms. Because remember, Jesus didn't come to do away with the law or dynamite the law or blow up the law. Oh man, you know, we tried that in hindsight, we should have run a different play. It's like, no, no. He didn't come to do away with the law. What did he come to do? To fulfill the law. What's that mean? Jesus came to realize the blessings of obedience 
for all who hold fast to him by faith. He, he grants us that the gift of a restored relationship with God, a, a new heart, a new spirit that, that wants to obey and that, that's able to obey. So as we, as we dive back into the Ten Commandments, especially the one we're going to look at this morning, we have to remember, friends, life in Jesus is not freedom from obedience. It's freedom for obedience. Remember that. Because joy isn't found in, in ruling yourself or being your own authority. Joy and life are found in being ruled by a life-giving, exceedingly joyful God. And so as we prayed this morning in Psalm 119, 107, Josh prayed this, Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. When we open to Deuteronomy 5 and look at the Ten Commandments, this should be our eager expectation. God is about to give me life. God is about to give me joy. God is about to show me which way do I need to walk in order to walk the path of life. That's a gift. What a gift. So hear the life-giving word of God. Deuteronomy 5.18, that we might be ruled by a gracious God. Single verse for today. And you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. I wonder how those words immediately hit you. I told my wife I thought it would be a little bit quiet during the sermon today. I wonder if, does your heart protest what gives God the right to tell me what to do with my body? What I do with my body is, is my business. He, he doesn't He doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I've lived through. I mean, besides, how can something that feels so good not be good? Maybe that's you. Or, or maybe you're, you're gripped by the, the guilt and shame of something you did years ago or something you're doing right now. Something you knew was wrong and did anyway. Hurting the very people you promised to love and who sacrificed the most to love you. Maybe you are one of those people because you've been betrayed. And the grief of that still has not gone away. Maybe you're an unmarried Christian who's tempted to minimize what, what God says about honoring him with your body. You know, you, here's the story you're telling yourself. I, I'm just a red-blooded male. 
Why, why would God give me these desires if he didn't want me to do something with them? It's not, it's not like anyone's getting hurt. It's not like I'm committing adultery. I'm not even married. If you're not married, how can you break the seventh commandment? Why, why would that woman pose for that picture if she didn't want me to look at it? Or maybe, friend, you're, you're all too aware of God's design for your sexuality, but you are really scared. You're scared of of how other Christians will respond if you share with them some of the same-sex desires that you've experienced lately. Or you feel defeated or discouraged or condemned in your struggle with some other sort of sexual sin. Maybe you are on the very edge of completely giving up hope. You you can tell that that your heart is, is growing numb to the conviction of the Spirit. That things that bothered you and your conscience at one point just don't really trouble you anymore. And in your sane moments, that's frightening. Or maybe you're a parent with a 12-year-old child in this room. (laughs) And right now you are thinking, I sure hope this preacher doesn't say anything (laughs) that prompts awkward questions over lunch today. (laughs) Matthew, do we really have to talk about this? How about we just wink at each other and go right to verse 19? (laughs) Can we do that? Friend, no matter what category you're in, please remember what I said just a few moments ago. Everything God says to us in his word, every command, every rule, Deuteronomy 5.18 included, is a precious gift for you. It's designed to show you the the glory of God's goodness and to mark out the path of life and and keep you on the path of life. And and can I, let's just make this very clear and rejoice in this together at the outset. Thanks be to God that in a sex-crazed world, he does not say, would you just stop talking about that? I can't believe Adam and Eve figured out they could do that. <laughs> no, no, the, the seventh commandment is part of an exceedingly good and glorious vision for your sexuality. When it comes to a fundamental aspect of your humanity, please know God is not silent. And in fact, he says so much on this topic that we're going to spend two weeks on this single verse. (laughs) Two weeks. So today we're going to lay some important foundations. Okay? First, that sex is a holy and precious gift. We need to pull the handbrake and just chill there for a while. Okay? We're going to do that. And then second for today... That, that adultery starts in the heart. 
Sex is a holy and precious gift, and adultery starts in the heart. Then we're going to come back next week and and build on those two principles by by considering in what I think will be a shorter sermon, what, what it practically looks like to pursue sexual purity as the path of life. Okay? So, why, why are we going to do it this way? Because I think without taking time to consider slowly exactly what's at stake in the seventh commandment, we're going to lack the motivation to keep it. And if we only consider what's at stake, but we don't think really carefully about how does God's word, how does the gospel, how does the church practically help us to run down that path of sexual purity, well, then the joy of pleasing God with our bodies is just going to remain out of reach. So that's my way of saying, friend, you need both sermons. <laughs> so come back next week, okay? We want to think carefully about why God cares about what we do with our bodies. That's today. And we want to think carefully about how to practically honor God with our bodies. That's what we'll pick up next Sunday, okay? So, Here's the first principle for today. Point number one, sex is a holy and precious gift. Holy and precious gift. The seventh commandment really only will make sense to you if you can understand it in the larger context of scripture. That's why we're going to spend two weeks. Because if you don't understand the the broader biblical vision for things like marriage, sexuality, what what Deuteronomy 5.18 forbids and requires, we'll get to that, can, can seem really arbitrary or random. So let's begin by asking why, why does what we do with our bodies matter? We need to be able to answer that question. Why why does what you do with your body matter? Okay, well, let's, let's let the story of the Bible answer this for us, okay? Because the story of the Bible, the Bible's a story, it doesn't begin with you or me. It begins with our creator, God. You are the maker's handiwork, my friend. Think about that. Your physical body and, and all it's capable of doing and enjoying sexuality included, is not an accident or a, oh my, where did they get the ability to do that? (laughs) No, it's not an accident. It's not a, a product of evolution, okay? It's a result of God's divine design, which Genesis 1 declares is what? Very good. Very good. Why? Why is human sexuality very good? Because God created all of us for a very good purpose. Namely, to glorify him. Isaiah 43, 7. The creator speaks of everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And you need to realize that 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 purpose doesn't go away or fly the coop even after sin entered God's perfect world. Twisting and and corrupting our sexual desires in all sorts of ways. That purpose remains. That's the first reason why what we do with our bodies matters. God, God, God created them for a glorious 
purpose. There's a divine design to your body. And as your creator, he has every right to hold us accountable for fulfilling his purpose as our righteous king. But listen, creation isn't the only reason God has a right to tell us what to do with our bodies, okay? He, he certainly lays claim to our bodies through creation, but he also lays claim to our bodies through the work of redemption. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, or do you not know that your body, think about that. Some of us don't ever think about our bodies. We just try to make them work and get with a program. Slow down. Think about what, what is the Lord saying? Your body in all its physicality, all its nerve endings is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What, what does Paul teach us here, Kingsway? That if you're a Christian, God paid for all of you. He, he, he bought, he owns, because he paid for it, he owns all of you. And the price he paid for all of you was the cost of his own life. Could, could there be a louder statement of the value of your body? That God himself saw fit to purchase all of you, your body included, at the cost of his own life. Why would he do that? Because every one of us is born into this world opposed to God's purposes for our life. We've all gone our own way instead of his and, and are enslaved to sin and death as a result. That's why we need Jesus. <laughs> because Jesus came to free us from the guilt of sin. He came to free us from the dominion of sin and, and our redemption came at a price, the price of his own life. And so if God has given you spiritual life in Jesus, if you are a Christian, then, then know this, God didn't just hand you something, here's some life, enjoy it. No, he bought you for himself. You're his. He's yours. He redeemed you. You're his because he created you. You're now doubly his because he redeemed you. And so on account of both creation and redemption, the Lord has what? Every right, absolute authority to tell us what to do with our bodies. Sexuality included. Okay, but, but hear me on this point, friend. He has the right to tell us what to do by virtue of creation and redemption. But what he does with that right, what he tells us to do and not do, isn't random. It's not like scripture says, well, you know what? Just realize God has the right to tell you whatever he wants to tell you to do with your body and you just have to get with the program. No. God's reasons for the seventh commandment go deeper than because I said so or because I thought this would be a good idea. I mean, you have ideas, I have ideas, but haha, I'm God, so I win. <laughs> no, no. What, what God tells us to do and not do with our sexuality is grounded 
in something profoundly important about who God is. He has the right by virtue of creation and redemption to tell us whatever we have to do to which we say, yes, Lord. But what he tells us isn't just divine fiat. It's, it's a revelation of who he is. So think with me for a second. What, what does the Bible tell us about God? Among other things, that he's a faithful God. He's a faithful God. Exodus 34, verse 6. Moses, what's, what's the context? Moses wants to see who God is. Show me your glory. What's the Lord do? He says something about himself. He speaks. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Think about that. That that God's love for us is not a, a here today, gone tomorrow kind of love. It, it's a what? A covenant-making, covenant-keeping kind of love. It, it's more than just a, a mere sentiment or, or a passing feeling. It, it's an oath-bound promise to secure your eternal joy in Jesus at the cost of his own life. God's love is deeper than I like you because of the way you made me feel last night. Or I like you, at least until I find something better. <laughs> no, in the greatness of his love, Christian, before you were even born, before you had done anything good or bad, Almighty God chose you for himself. He bound your life to his. In freedom of his will, when you had done nothing good or bad, he did that. When you were dead in sin, without God, without hope in the world, because he chose you, the spirit then united you to Christ. Your king imparted a new principle of spiritual life within your soul, empowering you and, and causing you to, to turn away, to repent of sin and to trust, to surrender your life to Jesus. God did that. He is yours, you are his, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. He, he made you part of his body, the church. And, and as the son's chosen bride, you are infinitely precious to him, Christian. Even now, he's working in your life. Pre preparing you for the day when, when Jesus does what? When he presents you to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's the story you're a part of. That's who God is. He's, he's a God of steadfast love, faithful love, covenant love, a love that unites you to himself, Christian, and will not let you go. That's so much more than just a, a sentiment or a, or a feeling or a fleeting passion. 
God, God gives us himself to make us like himself in the context of eternal relationship with himself. That's love. And we see his love most clearly at the cross. But listen, there's another place we see that. A relationship that displays his love. That reveals his love. That, that magnifies his love for, for all the world to see. You know what that is? It's the institution of marriage. Human marriage is one of God's chosen means of revealing his character to the world. Think about that. I'm not talking about any two people who commit to support one another, okay? I'm talking about a relationship that is rooted in complementarity, Genesis 1 and 2, that's, that's designed to produce children, Malachi 2, and that reflects Christ in the church, Ephesians 5. Only a biological man in a one flesh relationship with a biological woman in an exclusive lifelong union where a husband joyfully cherishes his wife and the wife joyfully submits to her husband accomplishes all three of those aspects of a biblical marriage. And I think Paul's words in Ephesians 5 are especially helpful because they remind us that marriage isn't ultimately about us. It's about God. Because it's a, a picture, human marriage is a picture of his covenant love for us and our covenant loyalty to him. Ephesians 5 verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Who, who wrote that? Like only the smartest guy in the ancient Near East, right? Whom, whom Peter said, there's things in Paul's writings that are exceedingly hard to understand. And that guy said, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Listen very carefully. While marriage requires a husband and a wife to hold fast to one another on multiple levels. The one flesh nature of that relationship is most clearly and literally expressed through sexual intimacy. That's actually what God's talking about when he says one flesh. The physical act the act of sex, it displays and strengthens the covenant or one flesh nature of their union. A union that what? Ultimately points to the intimate relationship between Christ and the church. And that, brothers and sisters, this is so important. Please do not miss this. That is why sex is a holy and precious gift. That's why. Because it's a God-ordained means of making much of his covenant faithfulness. It's a testimony 
to the oneness and intimacy of Christ's relationship with the church. A powerful witness to the gospel, which means sex isn't ultimately about us and our nerve endings. It's about God and his glory. But the physical act in all its physicality, I'm not leaving anything out, in the right relational context, in the covenant of marriage, is nothing less than a spiritual act of worship. And if worship and sex have never been in the same box in your mind, then you don't know what the Bible says about sex. And you're never going to win the battle for sexual purity. Because you, my friend, have yet to see what you're actually fighting for. If you survey the Bible, you'll discover four inseparable purposes for sex. I'll give them to you in a list. Consummation of marriage, procreation, having kids, love, and pleasure. And I really like how Dennis Hollinger draws the clear conclusion. Listen, a morally legitimate sexual act is one that is in the context of these four purposes. When we isolate only one or several of the purposes, we distort God's intentions and fall short of his designs. And what else do we fall short of? His joy. His joy. These four purposes are found in only one location, the marriage of a man and a woman. This is where God designed sexual intimacy to be. And friend, it's that fact that makes sexual activity outside of marriage so grievous. You realize that? What are we doing? We take what God has given to display and strengthen a covenant union. To, To fill the earth with his image bearers. To reveal something of the steadfast love of God for us in Christ. To to cause us to rejoice and delight in his good creation. And we use it for selfish gain. And in the process, we're enacting a lie. Think about that. Because no matter how committed the partners may feel, sex says what? This is a covenant union. When outside of marriage... There is nothing of the sort. We're enacting a lie. God designed sex to what? To unite a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage at a deeply physical, emotional, and spiritual level. The world says none of that is true. Sex is purely a physical act. Nothing more. End of story. But experience suggests they're wrong. Why, why do people who spend, you don't have to be a Christian to see this or have experienced this. Why do people who spend years cycling through multiple sexual partners who can't even remember who they last had sex with or how many times they've slept with somebody, why, why as the decades go by, 
do they feel so hollow and empty and used up on the inside? Well, it's because we're participating in something that, that creates a one flesh relationship that says one flesh relationship when there is no covenant relationship. We're, we're living a lie. And when you live a lie, as sexual immorality does, that leaves devastating physical and emotional and spiritual consequences in its wake. And I get a front row seat on this as a pastor. Sexual sin sabotages our relationship with God. Sexual sin ruins our relationship with each other. It hardens our conscience. It blinds us to true beauty. It robs our joy. It it corrupts our affections. It, It compromises our witness. And if you do not repent of it, it will eventually destroy your soul. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Why? It's not rocket science. It's because you're harming yourself when you do that. Why? Because you're not walking the path of life. You're walking the path that leads to death. Proverbs 6.27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Listen, he who does it destroys himself. And we shouldn't be surprised. Because the more precious the gift, the more grievous its corruption. Sex is a holy and precious gift because it's something God created to testify in a profoundly physical way of his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love. And and that's, that's why, friends, we have to guard the sanctity of sex, okay? It's not about being prudish or being conservative or doing things the traditional way. I have heard all of that. That's not what it's about, okay? No, we refuse to engage in any kind of sexual activity outside marriage because we don't want to denigrate the covenant faithfulness of God. That's why, okay? We, want, we don't want to denigrate the covenant faithfulness of God. What do we want to do? We want to magnify the covenant faithfulness of God. So here's the point of the seventh commandment, okay? In a sentence, we magnify the covenant faithfulness of God by guarding the sanctity of sex. It's a worship issue. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Why? Because God is committed to magnifying the glory of his covenant faithfulness. 
And because he loves his glory and he loves your joy in his glory, he is not going to stand idly by while we denigrate the glory of his covenant faithfulness and say, well, if it works for you, go for it. He can't. Because sex is a holy and precious gift. It's about God. That's the first principle. Let's briefly touch on the second. Point number two. Adultery or the sin of adultery, it starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. So all we've been doing thus far is laying groundwork. Okay, important foundations. (laughs) But now let's answer this question. When Deuteronomy 5.18 says, you shall not commit adultery, what is it actually forbidding? Okay, what's, what's it forbidding? Let's, let's come down from 50,000 feet and get a little closer to the actual commandment here, okay? God is forbidding us from engaging in any sexual activity that violates the sanctity of sex in marriage. That's the seventh commandment. So if you're married, that includes any sexual activity that doesn't involve your spouse or involves someone other than your spouse. And if you're unmarried, that refers to all sexual activity whatsoever. Full stop. Wait, Matthew, are you saying that even if I'm not married, I can commit adultery? Yeah. You're listening. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm saying. Because that's what Jesus himself says. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What what, what does that mean? What what does it mean to to look at a woman with with lustful intent? Well, Well, Jesus... Let's first make clear what it doesn't mean. He's not saying that it's sinful or wrong for you to notice that somebody is physically attractive. Why, 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 is, why do we know that's not wrong? Because it's good to see the glory of the creator in the image, right? God, the beauty of the human body is not fundamentally a liability. It's a reflection of glory. And that's why we don't walk around like, oh no, I can't look at anybody because if I notice anyone's attractive, woe is me. No. That's not what lust is. The word we translate here is lust or lustful intent. It means to strongly desire what belongs to someone else. It's a, in context, it it describes a, a lingering, a leering, gaze that, that devours or, or mentally uses a body God has not given you as a spouse to satisfy your sexual desires. In other words, the, the seventh commandment is about far more than, than what we do on the outside. It's about what's going on in our hearts and our minds on the inside. It requires a whole lot more than just not jumping into bed with someone that's not your spouse. A whole lot more. It lays claim to your eyes, friend. 
to your mind. It addresses our fantasies, our imaginations. Jesus is talking about the movies we watch, the websites we browse, the stores we visit, the books we read, the music we listen to, and the messages we send. And I love how Kevin DeYoung says this. Even if we don't commit the physical act with our sexual organs, we can still be guilty of sexual sin by means of our thoughts, our fantasies, our reading, our clicking, and our affections. That's sobering. But what's, what's the heart attitude ultimately behind all of that? Behind adultery? in all its forms, in a thousand ways. There is a core heart attitude. It's it's this, friend. It's the attitude that says, Lord, all that you are, all that you have, all that you've given me is not enough. It's not enough. I need more. I deserve more. I demand more. And God, if you say no, I'm going to take it anyway. Because I know better what I need than you do. I mean, come on, you're God. Do you have any idea how insanely hard it is to honor you with a human body? Indeed, he does. Because Jesus, friend, the eternal son of God incarnate, was not an asexual superhuman. Maybe you thought he was because he looked like that on a flannel graph when you were growing up. I don't know. But that's not what scripture teaches. He was a real guy. He, think about this. He was a man like us in every respect, sexuality included. He endured the roller coaster of puberty hormones. He fought for holiness in the power of the spirit. And Hebrews 4.15 says he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's the conclusion? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Put positively, we have a high priest who is exceedingly able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Praise God for that. He knows your struggle. That's what that says. He's intimately aware of your struggle. You're not alone. His command to uphold the sanctity of sex is not some missive born of divine ignorance. Well, that feels easy for me, so you do it too. No. God knows from firsthand experience that there is a supremacy of joy, that there's an eternal satisfaction of soul. There's a life and health and peace that God has reserved for those who devote their life to magnifying his covenant faithfulness by guarding the sanctity of sex. He's not denying you life, Christian. He's protecting your life by preserving you on the path of life. Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God, give us faith, God. He is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, 
Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Do, do you realize that's the decision? That, that's the choice, the single moment, the fork in the road from which every expression of sexual sin flows. Here it is. Will I trust the Lord to not withhold anything good from me? Will you? Is he worthy of that? Has he shown himself worthy of that? Has he proven, Christian, those are not just idle words, but who he has been and always will be because he's a faithful God? If you're unmarried, do you believe that if sexual pleasure is something that would be good for you to experience right now, God would have already given it to you in the form of a spouse? Do you believe that if sexual pleasure is something that is good for you to experience in the future, that you can trust God in the future to give you a spouse? The same question applies to those who are married. Say you're married and regularly experience sexual frustration. I mean, newsflash to some of you in the room, being married doesn't just solve all your sexual challenges. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> say, say your spouse doesn't give you what you want when you want it. Do, do you believe God is withholding something good from you? Or do you believe that in the perfect sovereignty of his will, in view of his steadfast love, his unwavering faithfulness, that, that there's no sin, no weakness, no ignorance or selfishness, no desire imbalance that can stop Almighty God from being good to you? Will you live your life taking whatever feels good or looks good in your eyes? Or will you trust your heavenly father knows what is truly good and gives what is truly good and will not withhold anything that is good all the days of your life? Does he know what is best or do you? That's the question. Every expression of sexual sin is ultimately a sin against the Lord himself. It's deeply personal. It grieves his heart. Why? Because through our actions, we are accusing and indicting and condemning him and saying in so many ways, you are not worthy of my trust. You said you're good. You said you're faithful. You said you're God of covenant steadfast love. I know better. That's not who you are. So I'm going to take this for myself. You're not enough. I need sexual release. And I'm going to get it now. Friend, every violation of the seventh commandment is ultimately a brazen assault on the goodness and wisdom and love of God. Joseph knew that. What did Joseph say to Potiphar's wife? Genesis 39, when, when he, she begged him to lie with her. I mean, it wasn't like she sent him a text message and he had to think about it. Like, she is all over him, literally pulling off his clothes. What did, what did Joseph say? 
how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It was his holy responsibility to magnify the covenant faithfulness of God by guarding the sanctity of sex that filled Joseph's mind and strengthened him to say, yes, Lord, you're better. And that's why all the prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Hosea and others, they they equate Israel's repeated acts of physical adultery with spiritual adultery. Because Israel wasn't just breaking a command or some arbitrary rule. She was breaking her covenant relationship with Yahweh every time she did that. Because she was rejecting him. She was spurning his love. She was was violating his loyalty. She was saying through her sexual sin, you are not good enough. She She was being a faithless wife. In a spiritual sense, she committed adultery with all all manner of idols. Jeremiah 3 verse 6, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Friend, the point is that all adultery starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. It, it denies the goodness of God. It pursues sexual activity with our minds and our bodies that that violates the sanctity of sex and marriage. It's a sin against the Lord himself. And every time we take something that God created to make much of his covenant faithfulness and we twist it and we distort it and we corrupt it and we grasp it, Instead of waiting to receive it, we betray the lover of our souls. And he is a jealous God. He's jealous for your affections. He's jealous for your loyalty. He's jealous for your bodily worship. Why? Because he's jealous for his glory and your good in his glory. So the true test of sexual sin is not whether anyone got hurt or did not consent. It's whether God is honored by what you're doing with your eyes and with your mind and with your hands and any other part of your body, (laughs) okay? Adultery is more than a, a behavioral issue for married people. It's a heart issue for all of us. Our, our world, let's conclude with this. Our world is no different than ancient Corinth. In case you didn't know that. In our world, sexual expression, sexual activity, is treated, like Corinth, as completely normal. It's become a requirement for a life well lived. 
And in that world, friend, King Jesus calls us to something completely different. He calls us to make much of him with our sexuality. And so there are things we have to put off and there are things we have to put on. And that's what we're going to look at more closely next week. Okay. How's the Lord call us and equip us to do all of those things in very practical terms. But, but this morning I want to leave you with a couple questions and a critical word of hope. Here are the questions. Do you believe God has a right to tell you what to do with your body? Do you believe sex is ultimately about God? Not you. Do you believe that it's something that starts in the heart? Adultery isn't just a married people problem. It's a human problem. And it's not just a sin against your own body or your neighbor. It's an assault on the goodness and wisdom of God. The, the, the question isn't if those statements are true. They are. The question is, will you allow yourself to be ruled in that way by a gracious God, or will you refuse? Here's the good news, my friend. Here's the critical word of hope, and we're going to linger much longer on this next week. To whatever degree you are feeling convicted of sexual sin, or feel in a deeper way the the importance or the necessity or the urgency of, of fighting for sexual purity, please listen to me. Jesus stands ready to forgive and restore and strengthen and sustain you. Remember, please remember this. What sex as God designed it proclaims. What does the very thing that may have run your life into the ground, so you think, actually shout as designed by God? He is a faithful God. A covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. And because he's a faithful God, he makes exceedingly great and precious promises to you, Christian. Not idle words. Empowering, sanctifying, life-giving words. 1 Timothy 2, 11, I will leave you with this. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You're not alone in the battle. God is with you. God is for you. His grace is sufficient and his steadfast love is going to purify you and sanctify you until the day he brings you home as a spotless bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That day's coming, brothers and sisters. I can't wait to look next week how God helps us to get there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your covenant faithfulness to us in Christ. I pray that as we sing this final song and rejoice in your covenant faithfulness, that you would renew our vision to make much of your covenant faithfulness. 
by guarding the sanctity of sex. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your power, for your presence, for your help. Thank you for the gifts of conviction, Lord. Would you help us to see what's really at stake here so that we might be freshly strengthened to make much of you? We love you, Father. Amen.